Hey guys, wanted to invite you to the Awaken Conference, Memorial Day weekend, May 23rd through 25th in 2020. We are bringing it back. Thousands of young adults are gonna gather in this city, Dallas, Texas, to be a part of a weekend where we awaken to the movement you were made for, which is the church. To be a part of that weekend, to find out all that'll be involved, you can go to awaken.live and sign up. You don't wanna miss it and we hope to see you there. in Fort Worth, Houston, El Paso, Phoenix, Northwest Arkansas, Tulsa, Houston, wherever you are tuning in and joining from all over. We are continuing the series, God Save the Queen, as we explore the Old Testament book of the Bible on the life of Esther, named Esther, the queen, uh, and the crazy story that is around her life. Let me start uh, by asking this. Who is the greatest villain in any movie of all time? Joker, Darth Vader, Venom. And any great story, any great story has with it, man, you guys are really extra on this whole villain thing. And any great story has a, The Bachelor, well, wow. And any great story has a villain involved in it. And tonight we're gonna be introduced, but here's some of the ones that I think are the most iconic villains of all time. You got the Joker, of course. Then you got Bane, Uh, Darth Vader, maybe the most classic, then Thanos, then Scar, of course, and then Dr. Evil, which of course I've never seen because I'm a Christian. And, uh, but every great story has a villain involved in it has a hero, has a villain, has a great storyline and great plot. And the story of Esther is no different. And tonight we're going to be introduced to the villain in this story. But unlike those other stories, this is a true story. Uh, let me catch you up in case you missed last week. And it'll give us a little direction for where the evening will be. The book of Esther uh, is a story of a young girl who goes from a peasant to a princess, if you will. It's a rags to riches story. Last week we looked at the first two chapters where Esther we're told, was this orphan girl that was adopted by her uncle, and she ended up marrying King Xerxes. And King Xerxes was the ruler of the empire, the Persian empire, greatest empire the world had ever seen. So we had these three characters, Xerxes, Mordecai, and Esther. So for Xerxes, think Jake Gyllenhaal, we said. There he is, still looking good. Then you have uh, Esther. I'm mixing it up this week because nobody knew who Bella Hadid was. And going with still Bella Hadid. Gal Gadot, is that how you say that? Wonder Woman, however you say her name, Wonder Woman. And then, of course, Uncle Mordecai, the most famous uncle of all time would be Uncle Jesse, keeping it real. And tonight, we're going to be introduced to our villain whose name is Haman. And for that, I have selected Jafar. One, because look at that guy. Number two, because it really fits. Like Jafar was this prime minister, if you will, who kind of had the emperor or the sultan under his thumb, Haman, is no different. And you'll understand what I mean by that. But here's what's going on. So this all took place in the Persian Empire. It's a true story. It's a real story. And the Persian Empire was ruled by King Xerxes. He was a pagan. He didn't know God, didn't worship God. He thought he was God, not a great guy. He holds a beauty pageant and says, I'm going to look for the most 
beautiful woman in 127 states, anywhere from Egypt all the way to India. I wanna find the most beautiful woman. And Esther, this incredibly beautiful woman, wins the beauty pageant and becomes the queen of the entire empire. And uh, this kind of takes place, and she all of a sudden finds herself in the midst of the empire and set up for whatever God's gonna do. And the whole story showcases that even when you can't exactly see what God is doing, you can rest assured he is at work. So today, even though we're introduced to the villain here, it only is a part of God's plan and what God's gonna bring about despite the evil that is introduced uh, in this story, just like God's at work despite any evil that's introduced in any story. So with that said, we're gonna be in Esther chapter three. If last week was the Bachelor Persia edition, this would be the making of a murderer, if you will, if you saw that Netflix show. And uh, we're going to just see kind of how Haman became this guy who uh, at one point wants to inflict genocide on all of the Jewish people. Again, this is about 480 years before Jesus in what is modern day Iran. Story continues. Esther chapter three, verse one. Now, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamathada, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down or lay prostrate to Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for the king had commanded. But Mordecai, who's Uncle Jesse, who's Esther's uncle, who works at the king's gate, refused to bow down or to show him respect. The reason why, we're told a few verses later, is that he says, I won't, out of uh, my faith, bow down and worship any human person. So I don't care who you are, I'm not gonna do it. So every time that Haman would show up at work and he'd go to the front of the palace, think about it, he's like entering the palace gates, there's all the prison gu- or there's all the guards, if you will, all the staff, everybody lays down and bows down except for one guy every single time, that's Mordecai. Now when Haman, verse five, saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, He was filled with rage, and he learned that Mordecai, he learned of his nationality, that he was Jewish. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he would look for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So he goes from, I'm not just going to take this guy out. The fact that his Jewish faith won't let him bow down, I'm going to take all of them out. Long before Hitler was ever around, this is the first Uh, person, or at least one of the first people that wanted to completely annihilate the Jewish race and Jewish people. Throughout history, there's been a lot of times people have done this, quickly side note. And part of the reason is because there's a satanic or an evil force out there. So people over and over have tried to annihilate the Jewish people because God promised that through the Jewish people would come a Messiah to save the world. So if you could take out the Jewish people, you would take out the Jewish Messiah that was to come. So that was what was driving or behind Haman's actions, but he wants a full genocide on these guys. So he comes in the month of April during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign. Lots were cast in Haman's presence, and the lots were called Purim. We're gonna come back to that in a second. To determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. So kind of random side note, but basically he's like, dude, we're going to take all these guys out. I'm prime minister. I'm going to put together a plan. But he did something that was common then. It's not really common now where he's like, how do I decide which day on the calendar? Let's roll the dice. And so they rolled the dice and the dice came out with uh, a day, the dice being called Purim, and a day that was almost a year later in March. And we're told that he marks the calendar. This is going to be the day. 
Now he gets his plan, goes to the king, says, I got the day picked. Now I got to go convince the king to let me kill this people. Here's what happens. Then Haman approached King Xerxes. He said, there is a race of people scattered all throughout the province, provinces of your empire, all throughout the states, and they keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people. They refuse to obey the laws of the king as in to worship me. So it's not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, again, this is why I say he's Jafar, let him issue a decree that they be destroyed and I will give you 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The 10,000 large sacks of silver would be today equivalent to $280 billion. The entire GDP of the uh, empire at that time was 15,000. I mean, it's a huge empire. And he says, look, hey, we're gonna basically almost double. That's what I'm gonna guarantee to you. So the king, who, uh, if you know anything about history, at this point in time, Xerxes, movie 300, he just lost Thermopylae. He just lost to those 300 dudes who'd been doing a lot of CrossFit. He lost to those guys. And he's like, man, I need some more cash and some people. And so, of course, he's like, yeah, let's do it. If you can get me that much money, I don't care who they are. And, you know, it sounds like you got a good plan. So the king sent dispatches all over the country who were sent by swift messengers into all of the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, both young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to whoever kills them. It's crazy. It's terrible. No matter their age, I want you to spread in everywhere, in every state, in all the different languages the empire represented. They would have people and messengers that went in, and whatever language you spoke, they nailed on you know, the telephone poles of that day. Here's the edict, and here's what's going to happen. On this day in March, every person who is Jewish is to be killed, and you can take any of their stuff. It's like a twisted, old-school version of the purge or something. And so all the Jews throughout the land are, of course, terrified. When Mordecai learned, because Mordecai is Jewish just like Esther is, when he learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on burlap and ashes, and he went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. So Mordecai's going around, he's crying, he's weeping. We're told the Jewish people are going around crying and weeping that they know, like, man, this is basically, I need to arrange a funeral for me and my whole family. And the whole empire, and especially the city of Susa, we're told, is thrown into confusion. When Esther's, Esther, Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, your uncle Mordecai is weeping and he's wearing burlap, which is not a good look for anybody, and crying all throughout the city, and she doesn't know what's going on at this point. Remember, she had hidden her Jewish identity. The king didn't know she was Jewish. Very few people did. But she hears like, hey, your uncle is just like wailing and weeping all around the city. And so she decides. She was deeply distressed, so she sent clothing to him to replace the burlap. I love that. This is a classic lady move. The girl is boy, sad. I know what cheers me up. I'm going to send him some new fresh outfit, some new clothes, some retail therapy. Here's a gift card to Neiman's, whatever you have back then. And, uh, and then we're told Mordecai refuses it. So then he sends word to the queen and basically he's like, hey, don't you know what's happened? And he sends a copy, we're told, of the edict. Like he takes one off the telephone pole. Hey, send this and gets a servant and he sends it over to Queen Esther and she sees what's happening. And he says, go in and plead for the life of your people. Go to the king and plead for the life of your people. And she says, 
you don't know what you're asking me to do. You realize that would be a death wish. At that point in time, you could not just approach the king, even if he's your husband. You could not go in unless you invited to see the king. Anyone who did so, who didn't get the royal scepter extended, would lose their life. It says this. Then Esther told Hathak, who's the servant, kind of going back and forth between them, go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out the golden scepter. I can't just go in there and plead, Mordecai. It'd be a death sentence. And the king has not called for me in 30 days. As in, we know this king had hundreds of women in a harem. He's not sleeping alone at night. And he's gone 30 days since he called his wife in the last time. She's basically going, I'm not sure this is a great time for me to approach him, if you will. We're not exactly jiving right now. So she sends that message back to Mordecai. And Mordecai responds with this message. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief will come from the Jews, come for the Jews, and it will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Mordecai says, if you keep quiet, you're either going to die because the king doesn't extend the scepter or you're going to die because of this edict. But God's going to save his people, even if it doesn't involve you. Who knows? One of the most iconic verses in the book, verse 14. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though is it against, although it is against the law, I will go in to see the king, and if I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away, and he did everything that Esther had ordered him. We're going to hit pause and continue the story of exactly what happens next, next week. But I really want to camp out on these last few verses because we see an exchange and an interaction that is related to Mordecai seeing and saying, you've got to connect the dots. Esther, all the things that seem so random, and how'd you go from the present to the princess or a peasant to the princess in just a, a moment or a day? In such a short time period, it was clearly God was always at work. Can't you see? Could it be that you've been put where you are for such a time as this? Don't miss out on fulfilling the purpose for which you're in that palace. And I want to look and observe really three things as it relates to this idea of purpose that we learn from Esther's story and this interaction and really her life and her actions here. Because all of us came into the room and one thing that somewhere in your heart of hearts, whether or not you'd even admit it, there's part of you that deeply desires to live a life that's full of purpose. In other words, no matter how successful any of us become, no matter how well we do in our jobs, no matter how well we do in our careers, no matter what type of car you drove or what type of house you have someday or how many kids you have or whatever you define as success, if it doesn't involve a life of significance, like, dude, my life mattered, what a waste. And the good news is God is deeply concerned about you experiencing your purpose and the reason that he has you on this planet. And so there's three things that we learn from the interaction that they have here as it relates to you realizing your purpose. Because some of the stuff that was true for her is very true. Or these three th truths are not just true for her. They're true for you and true for me. The first one, as it relates to purpose. If you're taking notes, 
is this idea that you and your life has been shaped on purpose. Like he's, he's looking at the queen and he's going, hey, could it be, Esther? I mean, think about it. You're the queen in the palace. God has shaped your life. This is your moment. You're not there for some random reason or to build your palace or just to have access to whatever the king's clothes and whatever lifestyle is there. You're there on purpose. Don't miss it. Your life has been shaped on purpose. How was Esther's life shaped? Like God shaped. He was involved in the details and who she was and forming her story and the way that she looked. He was over all of that. We're told that she was a woman of incredible beauty. That wasn't something that she chose or got to decide. It was because God was involved in shaping her story. And one of the ways that he shaped her was that he gave her incredible beauty. We're told in Esther chapter two, verse seven, it says the same thing two different times, or it highlights, it goes out of the way in a way that I don't know of another place in scripture where it says both of the things it says. This young woman, Esther, had a lovely or really good figure and was beautiful, or your translation may say beautiful to look at. This is, they, the author goes out of the way to be like, dude, this girl had a good body and she had a really pretty face. She was thick with two C's and that's the type of girl this was. And God was over that. That God had formed and he shaped and he really put together. You can't take responsibility for that. You're the most beautiful woman in 127 provinces. Think about that. You can't take responsibility. You think that's just random? All of that was because God was shaping you on purpose for a purpose. In fact, even her story in the same verse, it says that Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. A tragic moment where she buries both of her parents and she goes to live with her uncle in the city of Susa, the king. And God was over all that and he was shaping and bringing about and all of a sudden he places the most beautiful woman, maybe the king or anyone at that point had ever seen and he puts her in the city next to the king. God was over all of it. Can't you see, Esther, your life has been shaped on purpose. Your life, those listening right now and everybody in the room, your life has been shaped on purpose. I don't know that you're actually gonna believe when I say that, like your story, how you look, the gifts that you have, your personality, the talents, the way that you think, all of it maybe has been touched and impacted by sin as sin always does. But God was intimately involved in shaping and is shaping your story. You have been shaped on purpose for a purpose. My, uh, my daughter, I have a one and a half year old daughter named Monroe. And uh, I think there's a picture of her. Um, there she is, just cardigan and all, three dolls deep. She's ready for church. And, uh, <clears throat> and she loves this game that's like this shapes game. It, it, it looks like this game that, this is just what you do whenever you have kids, one-year-olds and, and uh, kids. You sit around, you do these shapes. What's the point of the game? Take that little star right there, and there's a little star hole. It's a pretty simple game. I can't believe I'm explaining this right now. But you take it, and then you put it in this star hole. It's not as simple as you would think for a one-year-old. Shockingly, she doesn't conceptually get it. So she just thinks any of those are kind of generic, and I'll put them wherever I want. And if not, and, and she is like, a, she's like an Enneagram 8. So she gets like very, very lit when things don't go her way and she's throwing the thing up against the wall because she just wants the circle to fit in the star and, vice, and she doesn't conceptually understand the point of the game. You take the shape that most resembles the hole that it can plug into and you put it in there. That's really what as Christians we believe God has called us to in life. You take the shape of your life, who you are, how God has made you, how he's formed you, the gifts he's given you, and you plug into the holes of the problems in the world around us. 
You plug into the holes of the needs of the body of Christ. You take the shape, which is who you are, not some star, like how God has formed you. And you look for ways to take the way that he's wired you, who you are, what you bring to the table, and I'm gonna be a part of meeting and bringing solutions to problems in our world, to meeting and bringing solutions to problems at the church. By shape, what do I mean by that? There's an acronym that actually lays out, because people ask all the time, like, what am I supposed to do with my life? How do I know what God's calling me to do? I wanna give you a handhold, five letters. It actually spells out the word shape, because you have been shaped by God. Each one of these reflects just a different way that you've been wired on purpose, for a purpose, That'll give you some indication, men, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. The first one is S, stands for your spiritual gifts. God has given, if you're a Christian, speaking specifically to Christians, in a way that I don't have time to go into, when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in your life, and it's like they begin to uh, flame up or magnify different gifts that may have been there all along, but he just pours gasoline on it and the fire gets bigger. So there's spiritual gifts that God has brought about inside of your life. Romans chapter 12 says this in verse four through eight. For each of us has one body with many members. And these members do not all have the same function. So it's like, I got a body, I got hands, feet, everybody has one of those. That's what he's saying. So in Christ, we, though many, as Christians, form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And then he lifts out some of them. It's not an exhaustive list, but he basically says, hey, if your gift is this, then do it. If your gift is this, do it. If your gift is prophesying or speaking uh, a word of encouragement, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouragement, then encourage. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The first thing, how do I know what God's calling me to? You need to know your spiritual gift. Like, what is the thing that, man, I'm just like wired. This gives me life. Uh, People in my life affirm it. I think it adds value to the body of Christ because that's the point of the gifts that are there. If you're interested in finding what yours are and you've never taken either, you know, some assessment that may help you, you can go to watermark.org forward slash porch spiritual gifts. Watermark.org, there it is. Forward slash porch spiritual gifts. The first one. So how do I know my shape? How have I been shaped on purpose? What's God calling me to? The second one is a heart. So S-H. What? are you passionate about? Like each of us has different passions and sometimes that gives us an indication that, hey, maybe that's a way that God is calling me to further use my time, my energy. Like I just, I lose sleep over that and I get so excited about being a part of that. Maybe you have a heart for sex trafficking. Dallas is one of the most sex trafficked cities in the country. And you could join some of our friends that serve here at the ports that started a ministry called Reclaimed. That's all about fighting sex trafficking in the city. Maybe you have a heart for just international ministry and it looks like you joining us on an international trip where you go and get to be a part of our trips to Ethiopia or El Salvador and different places that we go and try to bring the message of Jesus. Maybe you have just a heart for inner city and man, there's so many different things, that, uh, different partnerships and ministries where God has given us an opportunity to be a part. Dallas has one of the highest and so many of the cities listening have some of the highest poverty rates in the country. And as the body of Christ, we think that is our responsibility. We're gonna push back darkness anywhere that it's found. We're gonna fight for children who don't have parents to fight for them. And we wanna be a part of bringing life and health to the place in which we live. I don't know what breaks your heart or what like gets you passionate. You're like, dude, I would just go all day about that. But that's a question. So what is your spiritual gifts? Like, what are you passionate about? What abilities has God given you? That's the A, shape. What abilities, like what talents has God given you? Some of you, like you're gifted in construction 
And you need to think through, like, man, how can I use the construction? Like, this is what I do. I do nine to five. I, do, I make a great living. And how can I use the gifts that God has given me to be a part of bringing about transformation for the sake of Christ in the city in which I live? Because you can do all kinds of things, and there's ways you can serve, but there may be unique ways that you could use construction gifts if that's the industry that you're in. You could join our friends on Second Saturday, where every second Saturday here in this city, they go and they help rebuild homes in high poverty areas of the city, not for gain or financial gain, but to be about transformation and giving people a second chance and getting them off their feet. Maybe you're like, dude, I don't know. I'm not very good at land or I'm not very good at construction. I don't know what I bring to the table. I'm an accountant. I'm just good at math. Uh, you could be a part of mentoring kids through Mercy Street, which is a partnership ministry that's in South Dallas, where tons of kids need tutoring. And furthermore, you get a chance to be a reparenting mechanism, a source of love, encouragement, somebody who changes the trajectory of someone's life. And the gifts that you have, whatever they are, God has given you so that you would be a part of living on purpose because you've been shaped on purpose. The P, personality. What is your wiring? So God, you need to evaluate him. What are my spiritual gifts? What's my heart? What am I passionate about? What abilities? Like what is talents and stuff do I bring to the table? And what's my personality? Like God, how you were made has been woven intentionally. God is not surprised by the fact that you're introverted or you're extroverted. And you need to begin to go, man, how could I best serve? Or what would make sense for me to serve and best do kingdom work? How can I be most effective for advancing the message and hope of Jesus to our world in light of my wiring? Like you may be extroverted and for you, man, there's, there's places where you could go and you're like, dude, crowds don't scare me. I'll get up there and I'd love to get the mic and be in front of the children and I'll be out rallying and just crowds, it's galore and I wanna be with a PLR. And uh, that <laughs> is a part of your personality and you should look for opportunities to where you know, those things align or for you to serve and for you to do that. And if you're introverted, there's no hope for you. And so I'm sorry. No, if that, if that is it, dude, everybody, everyone's all across the board. And so for you, you may be like, hey, I don't want to be with massive crowds, but I want to be in small groups. I love having more intentional conversations in a smaller environment, whether that's a small group or a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, if you're like, no, I can't talk to anybody. Uh, the coronavirus. Um, we've even got a notes writing ministry. You can write notes from home. <laughs> if, you're, if you're that, and hopefully... You're going to work on like being able to talk to people because that's pretty important. But whatever your personality is, God has shaped you that way. And so leaning and asking the question, how can I be most effective? And then finally, your experience. This is a big one. Your experience and your story is a part of how God is shaping you for purpose. Even the things that uh, were not according to his will, maybe things that were done a part of you that clearly weren't a part of his will. Maybe it's sexual abuse or maybe it was an abortion decision that you were a part of. None of those things are hindrances or problems for God to use and maximize and advance his kingdom through you. They can be platforms. Some of the best ministries we have around here are men and women who've experienced those things. They're a part of our story where sexual abuse is a part of their past. And now they're leading ministries and caring for other people who have that same thing. Same thing with abortion. Someone made a decision at some point. And so if you're in the room and you're like, man, I can never tell someone about this. Some of the most effective Ministers of the gospel, I know, have that a part of their story. Whatever your experience is, where you lived, all of that, God has shaped and is a part of shaping you on purpose to have an impact for him. Second thing we see from Esther, just like she was shaped and her story involved being an orphan and being beautiful and it brought about, is that she wasn't just shaped on purpose, she was placed on purpose, just like you are. That God placed her in the palace 
He takes this woman and he plucks her out of wherever she was, out of her family's home. He puts her in the capital city and then he does a beauty contest and he places her on purpose in the palace. And I love this because Mordecai sees what so often we don't see. Mordecai sees and he responds and he goes, can't you see Esther? What if it's not random? What if all the moments in your life that you felt like where this is just so crazy I'm now standing with 400 other women. I'm in a beauty contest. I'm told I can wear whatever I want. And it's for a year. And now I'm in the palace. I didn't even think I'd ever get to go see the palace. Now I'm living in one of the rooms in the palace waiting to meet the king. And then you win the beauty contest? Could it be? None of it was random, Esther. Maybe God has made you queen for just such a time as this. Don't miss your opportunity by failing to connect the dots that he's put and placed you here on purpose. And that purpose is not for you to just be in the palace to advance Xerxes' kingdom. You're in the palace to, exert, to advance God's kingdom. And he connects the dots in a way that so many of us fail to actually connect the dots. If I'm Esther in that moment, I don't know that I really think that it's clearly like, oh, this is clearly God. I think what you and I probably generally think, I think it's kind of random. Most of us, whenever we look at our job or we look where we live in our apartment complex, the family that we're a part of, we don't always understand and really connect the dots that, no, you, you're there on purpose. And you think, no, I'm not. I'm on the second floor of the apartment building. I tried to get on the first floor. I'm still trying to get on the first floor. And it's definitely not on purpose. If anything, it's the, the devil who has put me on the second floor. And you don't understand that God would say, no, 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 no. You've been placed, you think it's random. You think that that other person, you were supposed to have a first floor and all of a sudden they moved it away. And they ended up putting you next to that single widowed mom who lives across from you, you think it's random. It's not random. And could it be you're in the job where you are, today where you went to work, the people that you live next to, even the family members you have, all of it, God has placed you there on purpose. Don't fail to connect the dots. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says one of the most profound well-known statements from Jesus that we have. And he speaks to this audience of his followers and he says, as my people, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. A lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds Shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Dude, I love Jesus. Brilliant. Here's what he just said. In this day and age, there would be like one light. There wasn't electricity. I know, shocker. And so at that time, if you want to have a light on, lights were really valuable. Oil was really expensive. So typically every home had just one light. And whenever you would light that, you'd put it very strategically inside of the house in the middle or in the most strategic place to get the most light to light up the room. Because that was the source of any ability to see at nighttime. And he uses a comical example where he's saying like, hey, just like when you light something, you put it very intentionally someplace, like nobody. And then he does something that his audience would have been like chuckling, like <laughs> Jesus jokes. And uh, he says, no one would light a lamp and then come over and light it and then put a basket on top of it. And his audience would be like, yeah, that's crazy. Of course you wouldn't. God doesn't light lamps and put them in random purposeless places. And you're God's lamp. He doesn't just put it in places where he doesn't want it to shine on purpose. He's put you where he has. He's put you in the job you have. He's put you in the place that you live. He's put you in everything about your life. It's all purposeful. 
and he's placed you where you are so that you would not make a paycheck or make rich people richer, so that you would go and you would spread the message of Jesus. He put a light there. And you may be thinking, dude, you don't know. My workplace is so dark. Like, I don't have any Christians I work with. I mean, it is like, it's such a toxic environment. God put a light there. You. And the more that you can begin to connect the dots, that I'm not here to get a paycheck. I'm not here, and my job is not just, hey, I'm an accountant. It's not my job today. My job is to be a Christian who is an accountant and comes and accounts numbers, but I am a light, and I use opportunities to share the gospel. I try to spread the message, and I try to be an example of what Christ calls me to do and how I work, and I work hard. I keep my word, and I look for opportunities to point others to Jesus. That's what he said. Make sure you connect the dots, Jesus said to his audience. You're put on purpose where you are. And in doing so, hopefully, if you believe that and you see that and you know that, you're going to help others through the way you live. Connect the dots by seeing your good deeds and pointing to your Heavenly Father. Don't miss out on where you are and why God has you there. So many of you, tragically, and many who are listening cannily, I just know it because I see it every week. You're going to give your 20s to chasing stupid, foolish things. To chasing trying to make a million dollars by your 30, and you're going to give your 20s to a goal that is far too small and far too dumb, and he's placed you on purpose intentionally where you are, and you think you're a financial advisor, and you didn't even want to have that job, and God says, I moved all the pieces around to put you in that firm, to put you in that office, to put you in that school district, for you to be a light. Are you taking advantage of living out your purpose? You were placed on purpose, and Mordecai, I love it, because he sees what Esther couldn't see. Hester, don't miss your moment. You're here on purpose. Don't lose sight for all the palace and privileges and making something of yourself. What a foolish thing to give your life to. How much more foolish for us who know Jesus, who see the bigger picture, to spend your life, and you're going to spend it, you're going to chase, you're going to have everything the world would say is success. You may have a great house someday, you drove here in a range or an Audi or whatever you drove here in, you're going to get married, you got all the kids, you got that golden retriever, you got the life people would look at and be like, oh, that's so great. And if it doesn't involve you living out your purpose of knowing God and helping others to do that, you are wasting your life. And some of you get this, and you're giving your life to that, and you're living on mission, and you see yourself as, man... I'm going to work every day. And do I love it? No. I don't always love what I get to do or always love my job, but I'm going in there and I'm looking for opportunities to show Jesus the ultimate treasure or to show people the ultimate treasure of my life is not a paycheck. It's Jesus. I was interrupted today by a uh, girl as I was walking by and, and she just grabbed me and said, hey, my name is, is Macy. And, uh, and she said, last week you shared a story about a girl at that Taco Cinco, which I have a contract with Taco Cinco. I have to include it in every message, this Esther, so this would be number, no. And she said, hey, in that message you talked about, you went to that restaurant and you talked with Sarah and you're like, uh, you shared the gospel with Sarah. And I didn't know that, but earlier that day, or I'm sorry, after that, that same day, unrelated, I had gone in and I'd shared the same gospel with Sarah. And then I came to the porch and I heard you talk about that. And I just wanted you to know, like you said, I, I believe that was on purpose. And Sarah told me, I guess an hour or two after you guys had bumped into her, that I was the second person that had shared, that someone named David had earlier shared the gospel with her. And that it was beginning to mess with her, that God would send two people on the same day to share 
the message of Jesus. And then I came to the porch that night, and I just want you to know, it was on purpose. And that was just an example of somebody who doesn't work on staff at a church, who said, man, I see an opportunity. I'm going to look for an opportunity to share the gospel and share the message of Jesus to someone I bump into. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. This is about to make all the introverts uncomfortable. I want you to share the gospel with one person this week. I think the Apostle Paul would be embarrassed that I'm even saying one. He's like, what, one? Are you like, one? What? I want you to share the gospel with one person. I want you to just try to get in the conversation and just say, man, hey, do you have a faith? Can I share my faith? Can I share just how God's at work in my life? And if you're like, no, I'll never do that. I, I can't get there. Just invite them. To the, you invite them to the porch next week. We'll share the gospel with them. But a better exercise for you to experience and live out your purpose, just open your mouth and share with someone around you. Get into a spiritual conversation or at least try to. Try to look for that opportunity. And in doing so, living out your purpose because God has placed you on purpose. He shaped you on purpose. The final point is that you can live your life and miss your purpose. You can live your entire life And I hope you leave here with a concern or a greater awareness. Every one of us is in danger of spending our life and never fulfilling the God-given purpose for which you were created. The reason you're here. The reason you're alive. And spending your some of the most energetic, best years that you have in life and giving them to corporate America, giving them to the pursuit of a relationship that will never satisfy you in terms of a dating relationship or marriage relationship, pursuing anything that is detached from you, knowing God and walking with him and helping others do the same, not perfectly, but with other people in your life. And you're gonna spend some of the best years and you're here tonight and you probably won't even come back, but I hope you just hear me. You are wasting your life. You're wasting it. You don't have to. God doesn't want you to. And just like there was an enemy in this story who wanted to destroy the people of God, there's an enemy in your life and in our world named Satan. And he wants you to spend your years, your 20s, your 30s, your life. Listen to me very closely. He doesn't want you to have an impact. He wants you to live for insignificant things like how much is in your bank account. He wants you to live for the type of car that you drive, what other people think about you, how many followers you have on Instagram. That's the type of foolish, pointless, worthless stuff. He's going to say, you should pursue that. That's really what matters. Let's not get all crazy religious here and, you know, be really pushy about Jesus. Let's just kind of, you know, I like to keep work at work and church at church and just kind of right down the fairway. Because he doesn't want you to have an impact. And Mordecai looks at her and he says something so brilliant. And it points to the fact that Mordecai knew the promises of God. Remember what he said? He, he said, and he got a message from her. He goes, oh, you're afraid he's going to kill you. You know you're going to die anyways. And God is going to deliver his people because Mordecai had read the book. He knew the prophecies. He's going to send a Messiah, which means the Jewish people won't be annihilated. Whatever Haman thinks and wants, I don't know how it's going to go, but I know the rest of the movie here, and it's not going to go like that because Jesus hasn't come yet. So he's going to raise up a deliverer from somewhere else. So I don't know if it's going to be you, but if it's not you, you can rest assured somebody else is going to step in the gap, and you're going to miss out on your purpose. And could it be he's placed you in this moment and I just want you to think about it. I just want you to honestly think about, could it be all the different things in your life that may feel random, seem random, the places you live, the people you sit in a cube next to, could it be that God has put you there for a purpose and he's placed you on purpose and he's invited you to not miss out on your purpose 
by sharing the message of Jesus with those people. And it's not dependent on you. If he wants the person in the cube next to you saved, he's going to save them. Just like if he wants to save the people of Israel, it's not dependent on you, but you can be a part of it. And he's invited you to be a part of it. What are you going to do, Esther? And I think the same thing is said to us. How do you want to spend your life? Chasing what every story in Hollywood clearly reflects never satisfies. We're actually walking with the God who does and helping others in our world to do the same. There's never been a time that I know of in my lifetime where it's been more needed for the body of Christ to step up and be part of living out their faith and not a dead Christianity that checks the box and I go to heaven when I die and I'm not living for anything purposeless or I am living for a life that's purposeless now. There was a chance I've had recently to coach uh, my kids' soccer games, my son, and, um, and he's four, so it's really intense. And, um, and so we've got this team together and it's four on four. So we've got these four kids and we're part of the Red Knights. We had our first game two weeks ago. I don't want to brag, but we went five and oh. And, um, <clears throat> and it's these four kids or four at a time. You know, it's a team of like seven, but only four at a time can play. And two of them had to miss. We had like five kids. And, and we we're playing the game. And, and there's one kid on our team. It was like not fair. This, it made me like question genetics. Wow, really play a factor. Because this kid, his name was Jacob. And he was out there. And he was on our team. And he's the reason we won 5-0. He went hat trick style. I mean, it was impressive. It was incredible. And he, he, here's what made him different. He wasn't bigger than anybody else. He was actually a little smaller. He just got the game. He literally like understood, okay, I take this ball and I go to that goal, right? That's what I do. And I don't use my hands, use my feet. Got it. I'll do it. And he would go and he'd run and he'd get the ball and he would just run down the field. And every other kid is still kind of like, which goal? And uh, (laughs) dandelion. And Jacob is over there just like, he's threading the needle and he, he just got it. Like he conceptually like, oh, I get the point of the game and I can do it. And then we had one kid on our team, um, was it called little Johnny who, who the entire time, like we tried to get to play and he, he didn't want to, he like sat on the bench and he just wanted to eat goldfish. And we're like, Hey, we'll hold your hand. We got to get Jacob off the field. He's destroying the other team. Please, please give us something to tag in. And he was like, no, I don't want to play. And he said, and asked goldfish. We're like, Hey, your dad can come with you on the field. And he just continued to not want to play. And, um, and we just sat over there and, and his, uh, it was really sad. Like his grandparents had come. It was like, Hey, this is your time. Come on. And uh, he's like got the cleats just hanging from the bench. And uh, in that moment, it was like, dude, what a contrast. We have one who like clearly gets like, this is the point of the game. I know what winning looks like. And then we have one who is like, I don't want to play at all. I'd rather just sit over here on the bench and be comfortable. What a perfect picture of the Christian life for so many people. Like, I think the decision for all of us, for me, every single day, it wakes up and am I going to be Jacob? Like, I get the point of life, the game of life is not to score goals in soccer. It is to know God and help others do the same. Anything else I give my life to that doesn't involve a focus of how I can further do that is foolishness. And I know how to win the game and I know how to play the game because that's the point ultimately of the game or called life. And then the other one of just someone who sits on the sideline and is like, oh, I don't really want to do that. I just want to sit here and eat goldfish. And so many of you, it breaks my heart. You're going to spend your 20s eating goldfish. And those goldfish look like you pursuing tender relationships and getting drunk on the weekends because you're trying to cope with the fact that you don't actually like your life. And you spending 
your 20s not plugged in and serving the city and using your time and energy to help other people, but serving your time working a 90-hour job because that's just what somebody told you you have to do in order to make it. And by make it, they mean make a lot of money. And you are wasting your life. And you're going to sit on the bench. If anything in your life, or you are sitting on the bench, if things in your life are not connected to and pointed to your purpose of knowing God and helping others know him. And Mordecai, in a way that I love, says, don't you see it, Esther? None of it's on coincidence or none of it's random. And he has you here. And he has you here. And it's all on purpose. The question is, are you going to connect the dots and see it? In conclusion, you've been shaped on purpose. You've been placed on purpose. And it is possible for you to miss your purpose. And let me close right here. Esther ends up, and we're going to look at her story. She ends up stepping out, and despite what it costs her, she goes, and she's a part of delivering the nation. We'll look at more of the story in the weeks ahead. What happens next is that God uses her in this incredible, miraculous, like, wow, God showed up kind of way. The nation is delivered. And that day of destruction that Haman had rolled the light, the dice, the Purim, to be a part of selecting, this is the day that will be destruction, became the exact day that God brought deliverance. And to this day, since the story of Esther, the Jewish community, today, they still do it, have celebrated a festival called Purim. Do you know this? There's a festival called Purim. It's like one of the, I think, funnest Jewish festivals that there are. I don't know how really fun ones there are, but it's a one that is a mixture of like Halloween meets Christmas. You, you wear costumes, kids get candy, you end up getting food, and, and uh, you give gifts to one another. It's like a, a really exciting. So there's some people, there's festivals all over the place of people to this day celebrating Purim. And it's a reminder and remember that, hey, the day of destruction has become a day of deliverance for us, that our God showed up and he delivered. And to this day, it's celebrated. It's also a day that Jesus, when he was on the planet, celebrated. Because it started 500 years before Jesus and has continued for 2,500 years. And we're told in John chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus showed up and he attended this festival, this feast in the midst of the city. And it's a feast that's not told the name, but it's a month before Passover, which is Purim. And inside of that festival, he goes around and there's a man he sees that's lame. It's John chapter 5. And he's been laying there and it says he's been unable to walk for 38 years. And Jesus goes up and he says, hey, do you want to get well? And the guy says, yes. And he says, get up and walk and take your mat and go. And we're told that the festival was also on a Sabbath. So all of a sudden, these religious people come and they're like, hey, God had a rule. You can't you know, heal people on Sabbath or do work. And Jesus responds that God is always working and so am I always working. And then he says something else in the midst of this festival Purim celebration of destruction becoming deliverance. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and they believe in God who sent me to have eternal life, they have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins. They have already passed from death to life. And I assure you, a time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and they will live. He says, it's festival. There's an even greater deliverance that has come for those who are heading to destruction. And that deliverance comes from me, Jesus. 
And then he says something that's so beautifully profound and appropriate and relevant to Esther. And he says this to this group of Pharisees who didn't understand they were talking to God and they missed God because they put religion in place of relationship. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. The scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Jesus tells this group, all of the stories, everything, every verse, every story, every moment, all of the things that you read in the scriptures, they all were to point to me. Esther, Genesis, everything points to him. And the even greater deliverance that came because just as great as the deliverance that this day of destruction, Purim, that's the name of the celebration. Every Purim festival we celebrate that the day was to be destroyed, we were delivered. On a cross, Jesus would sow an even greater day that looked like the world would be destroyed, that destruction was headed, there would be an even greater deliverance. And all of Esther ultimately points to Jesus. And this life is not random, and all of it was woven together. And Jesus says, it's about him. The story, your life, all of life, finding him. And do you know what's crazy? In case you're going, man, coincidence. Do you know what today is? Today is March 10th, 2020. I know, shocker. It's Purim. Today, millions of Jewish people around the world are celebrating Purim and the festival that, hey, there's a God out there who, despite the fact that we deserve destruction or headed towards destruction, has provided deliverance for his people. And they have missed the fact, and Jesus says, you have missed that the greater deliverance has come through me and your life, and it's not random. And if you don't know Jesus, tonight is the night where the God who's there has brought you to this place, and it's not random. And he brought you in here and you think it's just because a friend invited you and they told you it would be, you know, you thought it was a restaurant you were headed to and you ended up in a church and it's because God has been pursuing you and it is not random and he's extended that. And anyone who believes in him will never be condemned. They will be delivered from destruction and they have already passed from death to life. And in a moment, if you trust in Jesus as the payment for your sin, that is what Christianity is about. God saved the queen. God saved you. He saves everybody the same way through putting faith in Christ, his death on the cross, that he came and he died as a payment for your sin. And he was buried and he rose again to give you eternal life and abundant life now. And it is not random. And whether you believe me or not, someday you will and you'll see it. And all of it was God weaving and bringing it together so that you would know he hasn't forgotten you. He loves you. He cares about you. And the rest of us, he's saying, I want you to experience your purpose. You've got to believe it. You were placed and shaped, and it's on purpose. And you don't have to like your job or even like your apartment, but you've got to know you're there on purpose, or you're not going to live out your purpose. Let me pray. Father, I pray for the millions of Jewish men and women who are of the same bloodline of the God that we sing songs to, the God that we worship, the God, our Savior. Jesus, I pray that they would hear, as you say in John 5, verse 25, the voice of the Son of God, and they will listen and live and be delivered from an even greater destruction that life is apart from being connected to you. I pray now for anyone here who has never received that free gift, this would be their moment. Would you help us who have to live lives of purpose connect the dots to what you're doing and where you have us. We worship you in song.